Hi everybody, welcome to Lectures on Lacan, a podcast dedicated to clear, coherent, and accessible readings of key texts in Lacanian psychoanalysis. I'm your host, Samuel McCormick, Professor of Communication Studies and Psychoanalysis at San Francisco State University. Hope you enjoy today's episode, and if you do, be sure to like and follow us on Substack, Instagram, and all the usual places. Make no mistake, the primary interest in chapters 3 through 5 of Seminar 17 is that field of jouissance that Lacan cues up on page 81, a field that he wishes might someday be called the Lacanian field, which would effectively, he says, be an other field of energetics comprised of other structures than those of physics. That's what's at stake on my reading of chapters three through five. But we have gone this far, damn near a hundred pages into this seminar, and we have yet to talk directly about those four discourses, the famous four discourses that everybody has so much to say about from seminar 17. Now, they're popping up in little fits and starts throughout Seminar 17. Let's take a second and work with what we have so far, with what we know so far about these discourses. And in each case, the goal here is not just to give you a baseline understanding of how they work, but to say one or two things that you don't usually hear about these discourses, something unique about each that is not usually at the forefront of typical Lacanian understandings of these four discourses. And in that spirit, I want to drop Seminar 17 and take a look instead at Seminar 20. Now, we don't usually go forward in this series. We usually, you'll notice, move backwards. We loop back into Lacan's previous work and then bring materials forward from there, because isn't that the basic Lacanian tradition, is we move retroactively in search of meaning, and then we bring that meaning forward. Here, though, I want to do something a little different. I want to start this discussion with, instead, Seminar 20. Because it's in Seminar 20, just a few years after Seminar 17, that Lacan gives us a great reminder, as he puts it, about these four discourses. And it's a reminder, I believe, that if you listen carefully to what he's saying here, offers a very nice corrective to a lot of the hand-wringing that Lacanians get into when it comes to understanding these four discourses. Here is what Lacan says, in hindsight, looking at his work with those four discourses. I'm in Seminar 20, reading page 16, middle paragraph. I will remind you here of the four discourses I distinguished. There are four of them only on the basis of the psychoanalytic discourse that I articulated using four places. Each place founded on some effect of the signifier and that I situate as the last discourse in this deployment. This is not in any sense to be viewed as a series of historical emergences. The fact that one may have appeared longer ago than the others is not what is important here. So already Lacan's got some key points here. First, the four discourses 
spin out of the first foremost discourse in question, which is not that of the master, but instead that of the analyst. The discourses of the hysteric university and master are derived from the primary discourse that gets Lacan going in this direction, namely that of the psychoanalyst, which in seminar 17, he's like, I've been working on this for 10 years and I'm finally able to discuss the discourse of the psychoanalyst. So don't think that the master's discourse comes first and blah, blah, blah. Lacan is also saying here that don't view these things as a series of historical emergences. In other words, yeah, there were masters before there were psychoanalysts. That doesn't mean that the discourse of the master precedes that of the analyst. The discourse of the master is a logical extension from the discourse of the analyst. It's only with the emergence of this discourse known as psychoanalysis, Lacan says, that you can then start tweaking that thing with quarter turns to figure out these other three discourses that emerge from it. The other thing to note here is that all the discourses, all four of the parts and all four of the terms that get scrambled and put into these discourses, don't worry, we'll come to it, they are all founded on some effect of the signifier. So that work we did at the start of our series on 17, which was to pick up the thread that we had in our hands at, throughout the discourse on seminar 16. Throughout our series on 16, this hypothesis that the signifier is what represents the subject to another signifier, and all the signifying work that Lacan is doing in 16, that is extremely relevant here. Because the topology of the subject that spins out from Lacan's central definition of the signifier, a definition that he starts in the early 60s and continues throughout the decade, the signifier is what represents the subject to another signifier. I hope at this point you are tired of hearing that definition from me. Because that means it's starting to work. That means it's starting to take its effect. It means it's starting to settle in. Annoying as hell the sounds that resonate from our bones when they rattle together. Here, though, what we've got is these four discourses and the four parts, the four terms that we plug into them, they are founded on an effect of the signifier the same way that the subject is an effect of the signifier when it represents the subject to another signifier. You see, so we're flowing from that basic hypothesis that we get in the subversion of the subject essay that gives us the topology of the subject that with the addition of a little a gives us that four-footed animal that becomes the master's discourse. This is how Lacan thinks. One step revision addition at a time. But don't get it twisted, he says. The original discourse out of which the others spin is that of the psychoanalyst. Reading on in Seminar 20. Well, I would say now that there is some emergence of psychoanalytic discourse whenever there is movement from one discourse to the other. Now, as we're going to see, you can take any one of those discourses and give the four terms of which it's comprised a quarter turn, shift each position one quarter turn, and you get a new discourse. And Lacan's point here is that 
the discourse of the analyst emerges whenever you shift from one discourse to the other. It's also there, in other words, in the interstices between each discourse. To apply these categories, Lacan continues in Seminar 20, which are structured only on the basis of the existence of psychoanalytic discourse. He's hitting that nail again. These categories, these other discourses, they are structured only on the basis of the existence of psychoanalytic discourse. That is the founding discourse, not the discourse of the master. He wants us to be aware of this. One must pay careful attention to the putting to the test of the truth that there is some emergence of analytic discourse with each shift from one discourse to the other. And now we have that second nail that he's hitting again. Whenever a discourse gives way to another, whenever one of those quarter turns occurs, you see the discourse of the analyst popping up again. That's a very interesting wager, and one you don't usually hear discussed in traditional discussions of these four discourses. I'm not saying anything else, Lacan says, when I say that love is the sign that one is changing discourses. Now, this is not a series on Seminar 20, so I'm going to let you sit with that one. Hang on to it. When we get to 20, we'll be discussing this, no doubt. In the meantime, though, if you've got Seminar 20 in front of you, notice at the bottom of page 16, he's got all four discourses pretty thoroughly mapped out for us to consider and take a look at. I flash it up here on the screen, but you can find it on your own. I want you to notice how he frames these things too. He says that the discourse of the university is a kind of sham progress, progress in quotation marks, from the analyst discourse. And so what you see there is, if you take the discourse of the analyst and you give each term a quarter movement, so S2 enters into the top left, little a slides to the right, he says this looks like progress, that the university discourse appears to be progress in that of the analyst. But the reason why we have quotation marks around progress is because it's actually a decline, actually a failure on the part of the analyst when they slip into the discourse of the university. Now, I'm moving fast here, but don't worry, we're going to slow down. We're going to get all our terms together. We're going to talk about the four-footed animal and what each position is. I just want you to notice how he's figuring this here. Notice how else he puts it. The master's discourse, he says, is clarified by a regression from that of the hysterics discourse. And what he means by that is that if you take the four terms in the hysterics discourse and you give them a quarter turn counterclockwise, what you see is the discourse of the master emerging. And there is no quotation marks here around the word regression. The master's discourse is a legit regression from that of the hysteric. And the university discourse is an illegit progression from that of the analyst. It's a smart move that he's making here and one that we'll talk a little bit more about. Just wanted to have it on your radar at this point. Far more important for us 
at this stage of the game is right here. What do we have? We have the places. He says they are those of agent, other, truth, and production. And the way this works is, you've got a four-footed animal, he says. This is the topology that he's working with, the structure that each discourse has. In the upper left-hand corner, you have the agent. This is the dominant position in any given discourse. And each dominant position is going to be filled out by a specific term. Hold off on that for a second. The idea, though, is that this agent is every bit a speaker, is an addressor, and they address this other. So you can take the agent and draw an arrow from it pointing to the other. The agent or the speaker addresses some other. Now notice it's a lowercase o here. Don't trip about it too much. Think about this as someone else, another position even better. It's not someone else, it's another subjectivity, another subject position. And so the question becomes, who do you put in this role? And we're gonna have four choices to choose from. Now let's hold off, we're talking about the animal here. Lacan's wager is that when the agent addresses the other, something is produced. And what I really like about this configuration, rather than a lot of the other ones that you see, even in Lacan's own work, is that there's no qualms about what occurs. There's something produced by this exchange. This address results in something. And you oftentimes hear this spoken of as loss or of like surplus. It can be both. What can be produced can be a gain, surplus, or it can be a loss. The point is that something pops out. Something remains of that interaction. Something is produced through that interaction. And it's typically something that gets fed back to the agent. You'll see this very clearly when we come to discuss the master's discourse directly. It's one of the easiest ones to see how the master addresses the slave, forcing them to produce something that through a more convoluted way than people typically acknowledge, the master can then enjoy. Now, the spirit of our work here is to understand these four positions. Whatever gets put in the lower left-hand quadrant, Lacan says, is that of truth. Now, what that means is that the truth of whatever the agent is up to is down here. That's why it's on the side of the agent as well. Now, sometimes it's a truth that the agent is aware of. More often than not, though, it is not. It is an unconscious truth. It's some aspect of their conduct when they go about addressing others that they are unaware of. Now, in the case of the analyst, you have a very interesting opportunity where knowledge is in the position of truth. Is it unconscious knowledge? You can certainly make that argument. And that's really what I want to illustrate here. These structures the function of each position in that structure and the function of the four terms that get plugged into each structure, they are 
highly variable. They mean different things when they're put in different positions. Now, highly variable doesn't mean that they they signify wildly different things. It means, though, that with each position, you see a variation on that term. S1, when operating as agent, is not the same as S1 when operating as production. We'll see as we get into each of the discourses. First, what I want you to know is that you've got this four-part structure. And whatever term you plug into one of these positions, it will serve that function. Now, that said, what are the four terms? Lacan outlines them here at the top of page 17. It's useful, although we're going to adjust each term. Broadly speaking, and in ways that I think warrant correction, S1 equals the master signifier. S2 equals knowledge. The barred S is the subject, and little a surplus jouissance. That's what he says here. Now, my wager is that in order to have a clear, coherent, and accessible account of how these discourse operates, you have to understand that each of these terms, when plugged into different operations in the structure of the discourse, it's going to work a little bit differently. It's kind of case by case. You have to see where each term is plugged in relative to the others. And let's be clear. If you take these four terms, S1, S2, barred subject, and A, and you allow them to be plugged into this four-part structure that is the structure of a discourse, you can spin this thing many different ways. If you remove the order in which Lacan says these terms flow, you can come up with 24 different discourses. But by adding the constraint of order, of sequence, Lacan enables us to come up with four discourses. But if you remove that part of the program, you can come up with 24 different discourses just using these four terms and plugging them in all the various positions that you can get. One of the discourses that you'll generate, for instance, out of that of the hysteric is that of the capitalist. It's not one of the four discourses featured in 17, so we're pausing on that for a second. My point, though, is Lacan also wants to say that these four terms, S1, S2, barred subject, and A, have a flow to them. I think this is really fascinating because it allows us to say something pretty profound about how these terms hang together. And it's something that you see Lacan working up here as well. The flow is as follows, from S1 to S2 to little a to barred subject to S1 to S2 to little a to barred subject. And what I want to emphasize is that that is a flow of addressivity. S1 is always addressing an S2. There's the discourse of the master. S2 is always addressing an objet a. There's the discourse of the university. Objet a is always addressing a split subject. There's the discourse of the analyst. Split subject is always addressing an S1. There's the discourse of the hysteric. So the way to do this is to sit down with a piece of paper, 
draw a circle with S1 at 12 o'clock, S2 at 3 o'clock, object A at 6 o'clock, and the barred subject at 9 o'clock. Make this thing look like a clock. And note that the clockwise direction from S1 to S2 to little a to the split subject is the direction of addressivity, of speech. S1 is always addressing an S2, is always addressing an A, is always addressing a barred subject, is always addressing an S1. Now here's something to add to that though. That clock can also be turned back. The counterclockwise direction is not of addressivity but of truth. This is important to wrap your heads around. Right out of the gates, right out of the start, before we start fucking with any of the discourses. The truth of the dominating position in the discourse of the master, that S1, is the barred subject. That is a counterclockwise move. The truth of the barred subject that you see in the dominant position, upper left-hand corner, of the discourse of the hysteric is objet a. You see, that's a counterclockwise move on this clock face that you're thinking about here. Now, what is the truth of the discourse of the analyst? It's S2. And the truth of the discourse of the university that speaks from the position of S2 is, of course, S1. So what you wind up with is a clock face that looks kind of like this. You've got a clockwise circuit of address from S1 to S2 to A to barred subject, and then you've got this counterclockwise circuit of truth. You can see each of the four discourses mapped up here. I throw this out as a simple yet highly significant diagram to hold in mind here. The circuit of address moves in the opposite direction of that of truth. When you accept Lacan's wager here that these four terms always appear in sequential order. Let's be even more categorical. The master and the analyst, they each address each other's truths. The university and the hysteric, they each address each other's truths. Now you can see, I'm chomping at the bit to get to some sort of a coherent discussion of discourse itself, of these discourses as they hang together and work with each other. In the spirit of starting with 20, in order to understand 17, I'm putting a bit of this diagrammatic carriage in front of the horses of these four discourses that we want to eventually attach to them. So let's summarize what we have so far. You've got a four-part structure where agent is in the upper left-hand corner, addressee or other is in the upper right-hand corner, and their interaction results in a production of something, either a loss or a gain. And then beneath the agent, you have a truth, typically an unconscious truth. We know that each of these positions 
like each of the terms that can variably fill them, are founded on effects of signification. We also know that university, hysteric, and master are all based on or derived from the primary discourse of the analyst, and that the analyst discourse pops up whenever you run a circuit between any of the other discourses. And then we've got this other summative remark that we get out of 20. The university discourse is like sham progress from the analyst discourse, which means, again, that that is a threat to whoever occupies the discourse of the analyst. You are always tempted to slip in to speaking like a professor. And it's a temptation that Lacan routinely struggled with, as we'll see. And then you also have the master as a legitimate regression from the hysterics discourse. Here you see a counterclockwise shift in those four terms. Step by step, we're going to come closer to each of these discourses. And step by step, everything you just heard is going to start to make more sense in terms of how they hang together and how variable these four individual terms can be depending on where they are in any given discourse. Let's pick up the thread and look at each of these four terms one more time and start to open up their definitions just a little bit. S1, you heard me say, is typically understood as the master signifier. That's how Lacan quickly defines it in Seminar 20. I would suggest that we can do more with S1 vis-a-vis -vis these four discourses by understanding it not as the, a master signifier, which is a technical term in Lacan's vocabulary, a nonsensical signifier that totalizes or collectivizes a set of entities or events, and instead to see it as simpler than that. S1 is not the master signifier. More than that, I think it's helpful to see it as a signifier of the master, a signifier of mastery. In the dominant position of the master, we see it as what Lacan calls the law. S2. Typically, we see this defined as knowledge. Even Lacan, right? But we know that knowledge is a more complicated term than all that. The knowledge here at the level of S2, I would suggest, is the knowledge process that we hear Lacan talking about at the start of Seminar 17. This process that is totalizing collectivizing, that is an operation, and that is goaded by the same logic that we see in the big barred other. S2, as we heard in seminar 16, is an excised subset of the big barred other, and it's tempted by all the same logics of completion, consistency, and the like, but fundamentally it's a process. Now, in some of the discourses, you'll see knowledge functioning more as like a closed entity, or structure. There's the discourse of the university. But more often than not, knowledge will be figured as a kind of process, something that can be transmuted, redisfigured, something that is more open than closed. And that's consistent with what Lacan's doing with knowledge here in Seminar 17. So hold that procedural door open. Knowledge here is a process. That S2 is a process. Now, the barred subject is, of course, the barred subject, the split subject. 
But again, I think we should stick closer to what Lacan tells us in Seminar 17. The barred subject is the mark language leaves in the living individual. That is what we have heard Lacan say about this split subject. And what we've added to that is that that is a marking that doesn't just happen once. Living individuals like you and me, we are repeatedly, recursively, iteratively marked by the symbolic. We never are just marked once. We are many split subjects. The subjugating and subjectivizing process never just occurs once, but instead is occurring over and over and over again. Thankfully, our living individualism, our status as singular embodied beings, will always exceed any given collection or sequence of marks that we receive from the symbolic. We'll come to that as we come to it. Let's get back after that little a, though. You get to seminar 17, and everybody wants to talk about little a is surplus enjoyment. I mean, sometimes, yeah, sometimes that's what it means. But that's not all it means. In fact, if you read Lacan carefully, what he'll say is, when you see objet a occupying the position of the agent, namely in the discourse of the analyst, what you see it functioning as is a rejection of surplus enjoyment. In fact, what it symbolizes there is just that, the reject. Little a in the position of agent in the discourse of the analyst marks the psychoanalyst as a reject. And by the way, that's a success. That's an achievement that the analyst must accomplish in any given clinical experience. That's Lacan's wager. And you'll notice too, like the barred subject, it receives this very specific designation when it is in the dominant position here in the discourse of the hysteric. Lacan says that here what we see is the barred subject equaling the symptom. The barred subject, when in that dominant position, has a slightly different identity. It functions as a symptom in the discourse of the hysteric. Interesting. Very interesting additions. Preliminary, tentative, organic, that we will build out as we learn more about these discourses. What I want to just start doing, though, is widening the gyre of each term to include some more nuanced ways of understanding each of these four algebraic symbols in Lacan's thought. And again, what I also want to do is not just tell you what you already know about these discourses, what you can look up online and figure out on your own, but also see if we can discover something a little unique, different, say something different about these four discourses as they unfold in Lacan's thought. So, knowing full well that the starting place for the four discourses is that of the analyst, and that the four discourses 
spin out or are derived from that basic structure of the analyst, I want to do exactly what Lacan does in seminar 20, which is put the discourse of the master nevertheless right up front. He positions the discourse of the analyst at the end of the table he gives us at the start of, of seminar 20. And instead, in typical fashion, starts with that of the master. Maybe because it's the easiest to access. Some people speculate that it's because the master precedes the analyst in the history of Western civilization, you might say. And Lacan, again, in seminar 20, is like, nope, that is not it at all. I think it's easier to begin with the master. But that's not the only reason why I start there. It's also where Lacan starts in Seminar 17. He starts by unfurling the master. Perhaps that is a symptom of his time, of that epoch of the late 1960s Parisian intellectual revolutionary scene. Maybe. The reason why I want to start, though, with the discourse of the master, and the reason why I've already touched upon this in previous lectures in this series, is because in the discourse of the master, you see the topology of the subject that Lacan is developing throughout that decade coming to bear. You see the S1 with an arrow pointed to S2 and a barred subject underneath. You see the topology of the subject receiving its latest revision, its latest extension, with the addition of that little A in the bottom right-hand quadrant. So let's see what happens when you generate the discourse of the master. S1 in the position of agent, S2 in the position of other, objet A in the position of production, and this barred subject in the position of truth. I think we can do a lot with this. Let's start with our four terms. S1 in the position of the agent, Lacan defines as the law. And we typically understand this as a master signifier. And what that means is that it's a nonsensical signifier. The master signifier here is like that which the parent issues when they say after the child has asked why, 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 30 times, because I said so. That is the nonsensical signifier. That is S1 as a master signifier, because I'm the boss. Okay, darling, it's time to get ready for school. Why? Well, because we only have about 15 minutes in order to eat breakfast, get your teeth brushed, and get out the door. Why? Well, because we stayed up a little bit later than last night, and you slept in a little bit this morning, so we're kind of in a rush. Why? School's really important, don't you say, so you're trying to change the subject even? Why is school important? Well, because you need to go and learn stuff in order so you, know, so you can go on and, and become a psychoanalyst and all this kind of shit. And you have all these wagers, and the kid can just keep asking why. Now, Lacan is pretty good on this, and we've riffed on this in previous series. What I want to just add to it is this. All of those whys can continue typically until the master, as parent, issues a nonsensical signifier. And it is because I said so, because I'm the master and you're the slave. Now, this is not good parenting, but it is absolutely an illustration of how we typically understand S1. It's a nonsensical signifier that the master issues and basically amounts to because I said so. But again, 
when S1 pops in the agential position of the discourse of the master, the upper left hand, I would suggest that it's just easier to just start understanding this as a signifier of mastery. Now, if you want to go and push it into the nonsensical start part, you certainly can, but I certainly like it better as just a signifier of the master. S2 in the position of the other in the discourse of the master is the worker, is the slave, is really what we would now know as the wage slave. This is the person who receives the master's command. You've heard this before, so we won't spend too much time on it. Little a in the bottom right-hand quadrant of the discourse of the master is production. And it can be a loss or a gain. Think back to our earlier lecture in this series on how that works in terms of capitalist logics of production and that watch factory that I mentioned. If I can make that watch for less than you're willing to pay for it, I will have a gain. A surplus value will be generated because after I pay all my wage slaves, repair all the equipment that gets worn down, buy new materials to make new watches, you see what I'm saying? After I pay all my bills at the end of the month, I can still make those watches for less than you're willing to pay. That results in a gain, in a surplus value, because surplus value, again, is the difference between how much it costs to produce something and what somebody is willing to pay for it. If it costs me 10 bucks to make my watch and you're willing to pay 30, I have a surplus value of $20. That's money that I get to pocket as master, as capitalist. But remember, the production that comes from the slave or the worker's efforts can also result in a loss. And in very simple economic terms, this can be where you wind up with, I don't know, a spike in the cost of materials that is not readily passed on to consumers. And so suddenly it's costing you $40 to produce watches, but people are still only willing to pay 30 for them. Now you've got a $10 loss on each watch that you've produced. So this is the point, and this is the reason why I suggest that we should limit that lower right-hand quadrant of the discourses to the status of production, and why I like how Lacan arrives at that in Seminar 20. Don't think of it as necessarily a loss or a gain. It's just something that is produced. It can be a loss. It can be a gain. The same with capitalist logics. Now, the Bard subject in the lower left-hand quadrant of the Discourse of the Master, in some sense, this one's the easiest of all. This is your classic, divided, barred subject. One part conscious and one part, crucially, unconscious. This is what the master cannot bear. They cannot bear this truth that they are indeed simply split subjects. And a lot of what happens as the discourse of the master, consumer, capitalist unfolds is this systematic effort to avoid the fact 
that they are barred subjects like the rest of us to avoid lack, to forestall desire. Let's see what we can make of this. Here's what we know so far in Seminar 17. And remember, we're on chapters 3 through 5 here. Here's what we know so far. The master doesn't want to know anything about their own split subjectivity, their own lack, their own desirousness. That's why you see the barred subject in the position of truth. It's an unconscious truth, a repressed truth. What we've also learned, though, is that the master doesn't want to know anything about the slave's work and labor either. The master gets off on ignorance, not just the commodities that the slave produces. Ignorance is in every bit the master's habit of mind. You know what? This is also why the masters of this world will be the first to go if there's ever a zombie apocalypse, because ignorance is their habit of mind. They don't know shit. And that's why they're going to be the first ones to go in a zombie apocalypse. And they fucking know it. That's why you see the emergence of like rich folks building bunkers and hiring security teams and then having this like really like deranged and very challenging thought of, wait a minute, if I need a security team to manage my bunker in an apocalyptic environment, how am I going to keep the security team from taking me out in that scenario? Because seriously, why would the security team at that stage need the master? What could the master possibly possess to keep these slaves, security guards and the like, operators of the bunker, in their subordinate position? And a lot of folks, you can read some stuff on this recently, a lot of folks who are the capitalists who are building the bunkers and imagining this stuff, they have no fucking idea how these bunkers work. And what they're trying to figure out are ways to leverage and keep in debt and servitude the security and operating staff of these bunkers. I mean, could it be just as simple as love instead? How about you're going to remain with me in the bunker because we're more like homies than employer and employee. The master has a hard time thinking this, as is typical with the master. They know no equal. This is again why masters are fucking lonely all the time. Whenever they meet somebody else, they either see someone who's about to master them or somebody who's about to join the ranks of their slaves. That's what the master sees someone that's either going to best them or be bested by them. That's why you see these apocalyptic rich folks really tripping about the security guard, about the operator of their bunker. Which is it? Are they going to become the new master by killing me? Or is there a way for me to keep them in the position of servitude after the basic late capitalist logics that forced them to take that shitty job in the first place have fallen away. To be replaced, of course, by zombie rule. 
Now I'm speculating here. I'm throwing this out as an illustration, but to really capture a sense of how the mindset of ignorance sets in for the master. And to also really give the lie to the classic at this point, science fiction, futuristic bullshit narrative where all the rich people build a rocket to space. And that's what happens. They leave all the zombies and the downwardly mobile humans on Earth, and then they go live in outer space. And then they go live on some other planet. Let me just ask the question one more time. Who's driving the rocket? Who's building the rocket? Is the owner and the passenger in the rocket the same one who knows how to operate it? Absolutely not. A submarine exploring the Titanic lost at sea? Those fools can't escape. The billionaires and millionaires that pay to go on that adventure, they can't get out because the door of the submarine is bolted numerous times from the outside. By who? I'll tell you by who. By somebody who, if they decide otherwise, can just leave you in there. One of the great flaws in the fantasy of the wealthy capitalist's escape from an apocalyptic earth is that you still have the basic bunker paranoia that would have to be dealt with. They ain't going to find their way onto a rocket. Trust me, <clears throat> they're going to be the zombies that you and I have to deal with instead. Now, that flight of fancy aside, let's get back to what's up with this master. The main thing here is that the master has a way of systematically avoiding the experience of lack. Its predecessor loss and its effect desire. To such an extent that the master doesn't even know what they want. Now you heard me earlier riff on the image of a perfect slave. The perfect slave is someone who can anticipate the master's desires before the master experiences those desires. So the image was of a master coming off the tennis court and the slave being there with a silver platter on which you see the iced tea. The glass is sweating, it's perfectly chilled, and the master is like, damn, you are such a great slave. You know me so well, I didn't even have to ask for that. Now ask yourself, how your friends at fancy restaurants have been trained. The best waiter is invisible. Drinks are refilled. Crumbs are combed off the tablecloth without the patrons even knowing that it's happened. The plate of food should slide right across and land in front of the consumer without them knowing a thing. All of the implements for the meal should be there without them having to ask for anything. The water should be refilled before it reaches the state of emptiness, before the cup is drained. This is a good slave. The great waiter is a great slave because they can anticipate the master's lack before the master experiences it and then fill the lack with whatever it is that is about to go missing. What I would suggest, though, is that Lacan is right. What this yields is a master who doesn't know what they want because they never have had a chance to experience lack. Now, this is hypothetical, right? But 
if you follow the logic that Lacan is pushing here, you have a master that is fundamentally confused. So don't get it twisted. They are not only fucking ignorant, but they're also ignorant of their own desires and as a result confused. They don't know what they want. It makes me wonder, maybe the true master is the depressive. Somebody who suffers from a lack of desire, who wakes up in the morning and doesn't know what they want, who wakes up in the morning and doesn't want anything. The lethargic, depressive captures, in a sense, the long-range implications of a master whose desire has always been met before they have a chance to experience it. I want to add something here, something you heard me cue up. This is in the spirit of things we know about the master. The analyst calls all this shit into question. If you look at the discourse of the analyst, you see Objea as reject in the position of agent addressing barred subject. And we hear this typically as saying that the analyst hystericizes the neurotic. Always the neurotic, right? You got to be careful when you start poking at people's cracks. The clinical structure should be assessed as neurotic before you start doing that. Because if it's psychotic and you start calling out their contradictions, look out, y'all. The analyst, though, calls the neurotic master into question by addressing the very part of the master's identity that the master cannot bear, never deals with, systematically avoids, namely their split subjectivity. The analyst calls the master to task by pointing out every little contradiction, every little slip, addressing, in other words, the master's split subjectivity directly and repeatedly. That is the focus point, hystericizing the master by bringing their truth into the conversation. Again, great way to treat neurotics. Call attention to the contradictions, the hesitations, the slips, the other parapraxies, and the like. Now, this is not revolutionary. This is not mind-warpingly good shit on the master. You can read it right there in 17. What you can also read in 17, though, is something that I think is really fascinating here. How do you get from the slave with all this know-how, this capacity to make, I don't know, rockets, bunkers, cakes, and the like, to the articulated knowledge that Lacan says the master consumes and enjoys? This is the more radical insight, the one that you heard us working out in some previous lectures. Lacan says that you have these two columns. On the side of the slave, you've got know-how, this kind of bioanimalistic knowledge. I refer to it as muscle memory. This is knowledge of how things work, whether it's a bunker or the active ingredients in your cake batter. The slave knows how things work. On the other side, you've got the articulated knowledge, Lacan calls it, that is for the master's consumption. Here you see not bioanimalistic know-how, but a kind of sociolinguistified knowledge, knowledge that has been commodified. This is not knowledge of how things work, but simply knowledge that things work. That's a really fine way to understand the difference here. 
The slave knows how things work. The master only wants to know that things work. Now, here what we're looking at on the side of articulated knowledge is every bit a late capitalist consumer experience without remainder. The master just wants shit to work. And when it doesn't, they don't keep it. They don't work on it. They throw that shit away and go buy another and another and another. We'll come to that logic here in a second. The radical insight, though, that Lacan brings us to, page 20 to 21, page 31, it pops up again on page 79, is that the philosopher, read proto-university figure, does this incredibly scary job of exploiting the slave's know-how and converting it into a commodity that the master can consume. The philosopher is the go-between between the master and the slave. The university is the go-between between the master and the slave. Almost any time we see Socrates in Plato's dialogues talking with a slave, interacting with a worker, you see this shit happening. Lacan just cues up one example in the early bits of Seminar 17, which we discussed. You holler at a slave on the beach, you call him over, and through a series of questions, you know, you can reveal that the slave understands complex geometry. But isn't this precisely what Socrates is always doing when he bumps into a worker, a tradesman, a craftsperson, a slave, is through the series of incredibly careful questions resulting in simple one-line answers, we can see the slave's knowledge and the truth emerging, blah, blah, blah. It's great too, looking in these dialogues. Legit, you'll see like two pages where Socrates is just unfurling blah, blah, blah nonsense, which is Plato doing this work because Plato's the author, right? And then it's like, and wouldn't you agree? And the slave or the tradesman is like, why, yes. And then Socrates goes on for another two pages. You get these one-line answers from the tradespeople. These are great examples of what Lacan is saying here. In those moments, what you see is the know-how of a slave, tradesman, craftsperson, whatever you want to call them, being articulated, brought into language, commodified for the reading of an elite class. This is the work of philosophy, to translate and exploit the knowledge of the slave and to commodify it in a way that the master can consume. This, I think, is a much more radical way to understand how the master's discourse and the university discourse are bound up. This is part and parcel of what it means when we understand the university discourse as a rationalization of the discourse of the master, of the master's position. Now, that's not all I want to say about this. As we get reading here in chapters 3, 4, and 5, we see some great stuff on the master being spun out, especially around the topic of knowledge and knowledge as it relates to jouissance, which again... That's what's up here. It's that field of jouissance, the Lacanian field, he says. 
that's at stake in the midst of all this. But we're working on the discourses. Let's continue with the discourse of the Master, then. Knowledge, Lacan reiterates on page 79, is a means of jouissance. But check it out. The slave has knowledge. And as a result, they also have access to jouissance. Ah, but that is as far as it goes. The master commands the slave to work, but this work alone is insufficient to produce articulated, consumable knowledge for the master. This is why you have that position of the philosopher. The philosopher's job is to help that work do the job of commodifying the slave's knowledge. The work alone is insufficient. Lacan's precisely right about this. No work, he says, has ever produced knowledge. Again, on page 79, you can check it out. The knowledge of the slave, as know-how, Lacan goes on to suggest, is the price that the slave must pay in order to obey the master's command. Now that is an even more radical insight into this. The slave is the one who pays for the master's command. It's not the other way around. It's the slave who pays to obey. Knowledge leads to work, leads to a commodity by intervention of the philosopher. And the best part about it all, as far as masters are concerned, is they don't have to pay for it. They are not the ones that pay for this process. In fact, it's just the opposite. It's the slave who pays for the master's enjoyment. And I want you to hear this very directly in as many ways as possible. Notice how Lacan figures this on page 82. The wealthy have property. They buy. They buy everything. In short, well, they buy a lot. But I would like you to meditate on this fact which is that they do not pay for it. Now, this is a wizardly remark, and I just want to remind you once more that this is at the very end of one of Lacan's lectures, and it's where he realizes that he's running out of time. And so he just cuts to the chase. Check it out right before this paragraph. I have to stop in two minutes' time, but all the same, I'm going to make a remark to you that stems from an experience that is not particularly that of an analyst, but is one that anybody could have. He's got two minutes on the clock. And then the room apparently probably goes to somebody else. He knows he's running out of time and he starts cutting to the chase. The wealthy have a lot of shit that they buy and yet they don't pay for it. This is a very odd remark to make. How on earth could this be possible? Back up and remember what we have said about the philosopher. The philosopher. Who are we talking about here? It ain't your professor, although it could be, especially if your professor is at Stanford University, which is in turn linked up to various startups where Stanford profs go out and then have the next big app, the next big, sorry, I live in San Francisco, so this is a high topic of interest. Today's philosopher, today's university, this is the wager. It is not the professor. Or if it is, 
you know, it's less so. Today's thinker, today's philosopher, today's commodifier of knowledge, today's exploiter of the slave's know-how for the consumption of a master class, it's the computer scientist. It's the engineer of large language models. It's the algorithm builder. It's the app developer. It's the startup guru. These are the folks who are converting the work of slaves into articulated knowledge for the master class's consumption. And if you need an example of this, join me on TikTok. On my TikTok feed, what else am I seeing time and time again but time-lapsed building projects, typically in the wilderness, Pick your Eastern European wilderness, and I'm sure I've seen something coming out of it. A cabin created in a 90-minute reel where the slave, not literally the slave, but really? If you add up what it amounts to to be a slave, work without pay, and you start looking at TikTok producers, this looks a lot like work without pay to me that then gets commodified at the level of the algorithm, at the level of the platform, at the level of the app for my consumption. Again, I am not learning to build a house in the wilderness by watching time-lapsed, sped-up videos of people who know how to build houses in the wilderness doing it. I am learning nothing. The only thing I gain from that is entertainment. And as soon as it's done, another one pops right up. I don't even have a second to realize that I'm ignorant before the next video begins. You see? Is it any coincidence that most of today's social media platforms are free? And I want to put free in air quotes because as we all know at this point, we and our personal data are what's for sale whenever there's a free opportunity to do something online. Once you add this element of free to social media platforms, we now have the question of who indeed is the master here and who indeed is the slave. Another way to figure this is that the computer scientist startup guru, that's the master. And that instead at the level of the consumer, the user, me, you see one slave. And at the level of the Eastern European backwoods wilderness cabin builder, you see another slave. And that basically what winds up happening is that the consumer and the producer are both exploited divested of knowledge by the app designer, owner, and the like. That's a pretty compelling way to understand this as well. The point that Lacan is making, regardless of who you decide is slave and master in today's late capitalist social media inscribed lifestyle, is that it's always going to be the poor slave, not the wealthy master, who pays for the latter's surplus enjoyment. That's the key point here. The articulated knowledge that the master gets to enjoy 
they don't pay for it. It's, in fact, the poor slave who's going to pay for that work. Notice how Lacan arrives at this point. Final word on masters. Knowledge, as an open-ended process, produces jouissance by way of repetition. We know this. We've got this down at this point. Or at least we've got it on the table. We've discussed it. But the only repetition in which the master engages is in the field of commodity consumption. Again, depending on who you make this master out to be, the logic remains that of commodity consumption. Here's what Lacan says on page 82 of Seminar 17. He repeats his purchase. He buys everything again. This is not repetition in the field of knowledge to produce jouissance. This is repetition in the field of commodity consumption that doesn't produce jouissance, but instead a new opportunity to buy. This bit at the bottom of page 82 is pretty damn relevant to what we're up to. And this, according to neoliberal democratic ideologies, is what every so-called second and third world community is supposed to long for. If only somebody would come along and quote-unquote liberate them from their repressive read non-capitalist regimes. You can hear some pretty shaky logic coming out of neoliberal camps around this very thing. Beware of this potential, Lacan says, reading from page 83 of Seminar 17. Buy from the wealthy, from a developed nation, you believe. And this is what the meaning of the wealth of nations is, that you are simply going to share in the level of a rich nation. However, in the process, what you lose is your knowledge, which gave you your status. The wealthy acquire this knowledge on top of everything else, it's simply that, precisely, they don't pay for it. Now, you've heard of the military-industrial complex. Today, we ought to just call this the cultural-industrial complex. This is what confounds us. Question, to close out this discussion of the master. Why do more and more English speakers in the U.S. and abroad increasingly sound like they're from Los Angeles because it's cheaper and easier to purchase and air content from Hollywood than it is to produce content of one's own. And who pays for this content, this cultural commodity that gets exported? It's the greatest export of the United States these days, right, is culture. Not the folks in L.A., the people who pay for this content are those to whom it's delivered. It's everyone else. In other words, it's not the masters who pay for that expropriation, but in fact, the slaves. And the payment is not just rendered in cold, hard cash. Again, here pay in all the different variances that we might mean. Here, the cold, hard cash at the box office is one way 
that the slave pays for their own dispossession of knowledge. But Lacan's point is that there's another way that they pay. That's what this passage at the end of page 83, which puts us right on the verge of chapter 6, is trying to get at here. This payment is also rendered with local knowledge, linguistic, cultural, and otherwise. So when you start thinking about the master and you start thinking about payments rendered and received and surpluses enjoyed and otherwise, I would encourage you to think not at the level of cash and not exactly at the level of culture, but where they meet in a term that Pierre Bourdieu well understood as capital. It's in the field of capital that we see the discourse of the master playing out relative to today's slaves. Capital, some of it's economic, some of it's linguistic, some of it's cultural. It's at the level of economic, cultural, and linguistic capital that the master dispossesses the slave of knowledge, and always by way of these slippery philosophical mediators. Thanks for listening to Lectures on the Con. Stay tuned for more episodes soon. A big shout out to the artist Jerry Paper for our podcast theme music.